With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good day, everyone. This is Stuart Crawford, and welcome back to the MFP show here on Blog Talk Radio. I'd like to thank the folks at Blog Talk Radio for this great platform they give us to produce podcasts. And also, if you are one of those cool people that have one of those Echo devices or Google Home, you can now listen to our show live on your Echo device or Google Home. Just have to say the word enable the MFP show and Alexa will do her job. All right, I, today I'm joined by Jim Thomas. And of course, I, I mentioned the word Alexa and she says something in the background. Anyway, so we're joined today by my good friend Jim Thomas, who is um, with uh, Common Ground Seminars based out of the DC metro area but lives in North Carolina. And Jim has been working with large organizations and small businesses alike, uh, helping them win the battles of negotiation and uh, travels all over the world. That So Jim, welcome to our show today. Thank you, Stuart. So Jim, we know it's been a while since we had you on and we talked uh, about some of the common pitfalls and challenges that companies have with, you know, in the sales world when it comes to negotiating. And, I know uh, when I read your book, Negotiate to Win, I reread it a few weeks ago just to kind of get prepared for today's session. I was reminded that, and a majority of our audience is primarily uh, U.S.-based, so we can, we, can, we can talk pretty much U.S.-based uh, information here and analytics and numbers. In your travels, Jimmy, you found that U.S. businesses and U.S., you know, just general Americans in general are just uh, horrible negotiators. Has that changed at all? Oh, no, not at all. You know, I, I could train people for the rest of my life and not and make a dent in it. But the good news is that, you know, once you learn how to negotiate, for the most part, you'll be negotiating against Americans. So, you know, the bar is not all that real high. So why, why are Americans in general poor negotiators? Is it just a cultural thing? You know, there, there are probably a thousand theories, and they range everywhere from population density to Puritan ethic. You know, immigrant mentality. I mean, just just goes on and on. And I'm sure there's you know a lot of validity in all of them, but uh, there's really no good answer. But the, the important thing to realize is that uh, North Americans, and we'll just call them Americans for simplicity's sake, really just recoil from negotiating. We just don't like to do it. It's it's stressful. It's it, it's very conflicted, um, and we see it as a battle. I mean, my students continue to call the other side the opponent. You know, the first thing I tell them is, no, they're not the opponent. They're the counterpart. They're the, you know, the other party. You know, we're not here to crush anybody. I, I love what I love what your email to me yesterday was uh, harmony, uh, and that, you know, that, and I think that's uh, a very important factor in all sales, in all, in all in your sales process and everything. It's like I think, and you kind of hit the nail on the head. It's like see your see the the other side of the table as the counterpart. Um, and create harmony, and so it's a win-win-win for everybody. Well, you know that the word harmony actually, the word that I use was wa, which is Japanese, and that means in their language harmony, and that 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 basically defines how they negotiate. It, it's in fact 
the Japanese are such good negotiators that if somebody's a complete idiot and they're giving away the ranch, the Japanese won't let them do it because they know that even though that person might be a fool, their boss probably isn't. And, and whatever deal is agreed to has to sell up through the, up through the organization. So if they do a really one-sided deal, they're wasting their time because the deal won't be approved. So they will actually protect you from the consequences of your own folly. They're that good. Now, you know, this, we're not talking 50-50 deals here by a long shot, but still they're, they're very attuned to the other side's need to come away with something that they can be proud of. So the majority of our audience is IT professionals, owners of managed services businesses, people that uh, work with small and mid-sized companies across, uh, across the world uh, every day. And, you know, one of the things that we hear from other pundits in our industry is never negotiate on price. You know, don't lower your price because as soon as you do that, they'll be after you for the rest of your life on that. Is that typical American thinking that we're hearing or is, uh, is there some val uh, valid reasons why um, they may be saying this? Well, I, I think it, it, there's a lot of validity to it, uh, but concessions still need to be made. Um, so make concessions elsewhere in terms of uh, delivery, in terms of, of deliverables, in terms of you know other things that that are not price related. Uh, but yeah, it, it's you know there's nothing in negotiating that says never negotiate price. But I think it's a good policy because you're right, there'll be no end to it. Once you, now now there, let me let me just correct that a little bit. One of the basic principles of negotiating is to trade instead of just give. So if you would say to them, okay, I can lower the price, but in exchange for that, I can't do the following deliverables. Then at that point, it's really not a, it's not a true price reduction. It's simply a restructuring of the agreement. So in your travels, Jim, you know, what are you, what are you advising negotiators? Uh, what, you know, I know you have 21 uh, right. tips, 21, 21 kind of focus areas. You know, let, you know, for you know, we don't have all day to talk about. We'd love to, you know, go through it on detail. But you know, let's let's pick the top three. What are the top three uh, must-know negotiation tips that you can share so people listening to this podcast and say, you know, I got some great value from that Jim Thomas fellow. Okay, sure. You know, actually, one of the first things I tell them is don't even dream of doing 21 negotiating principles because you'll drive yourself and everybody else right up the wall, and you'll accomplish nothing. So you really do need to focus. There are actually six. And if we can squeeze in a couple more, I'd like to get through the, the basic six. Um, but before we actually do that, I want to go back to the American thing for a minute. Um, it's important for North Americans, especially you know, American Americans, to realize that um, negotiating is increasingly important because margins are shrinking and that you really have a strong you know, cultural disposition to not negotiate. Uh, now, it's fairly easy to fix. But um, a lot of the things that, are, that we're about to talk about are very counterintuitive for Americans. In other words, if we do what we're naturally inclined to do, we're going to do exactly the wrong thing. In fact, of the, of the six really key principles, five of them are totally counterintuitive to Americans. So yeah, that, that, that's where the challenge is. Intellectually, it's very simple. Now, these are not hard things to learn, but emotionally, they're challenging. Okay, um, let's, let's run through the, the, the critical rules very quickly. Okay, rule number one is incredibly simple. It's, it is trade stuff. Rather than saying, okay, uh, get in the habit of saying, okay, if. We can do that, but then we'd need this in exchange. Or we can do that, but then we wouldn't be able to do uh, this thing we talked about earlier. So every concession made should have at least an asked-for trade-off. Um, now, so that, in, in, in your book, Jim, you call that the Japanese yes, which I share with a lot of people, which is, uh, which for some people, when I, when I tell them that, the light bulb goes off. 
Well, Japanese yes is a your, your basic trade. Then a Japanese no is, is a trade, but the if that you're asking for is patently unreasonable. So that that's the way that's the way that the Japanese say no without saying no directly because that's that's right. Rude. Japanese no. I said Jap I said Japanese yes. But yeah, Japanese no. You're correct. Go ahead. Well, yeah. Well, Japanese yes is just a basic trade. Sure, we can do that. But then we did this from you. Um, and for example, if you're doing a price concession, you're you're offering to do it for ten thousand, and they say we need a better number, and you go, okay, I could do eight thousand. What that does is it destroys the credibility of your previous position because you've given a $2,000 concession in exchange for nothing. So what that means is your $10,000 offer was nothing more than a bluff. On the other hand, if you say, well, we can go from 10 to 8, but we would need, you know, we'd have to make these other adjustments elsewhere. Now, even if you don't get that trade-off, nonetheless, it protects the credibility of the concession you just made. But um, the Americans, we don't like to trade. For us, that looks like kind of like used car sales stuff. All right. Um, rule two, um, the idea is you're supposed to start assertively. Your initial proposal, whatever comes out of your mouth at the, or, or in writing at the outset of the discussions, should be somewhat more assertive than you're actually planning on winding up with. Um, because the other side is going to try to get concessions from you, and this allows you to make concessions whether, without it sort of coming out of your hide. Um, it, it lets them save face because they can go back and brag about the concessions they, they got, but in reality, you just built those things in, planning full well to, to trade them or give them away. So now, back to the counterintuitive, counterintuitivity thing. Americans, if we want X, we ask for X. You know, that, that's the way John Wayne does it. Um, but the problem now is, if you open with exactly what you expect to get and won't accept anything less, you now pr present the other side with two choices, either accept your offer without any um, face-saving concessions and thereby lose face, or deadlock. That's it. Those are the only choices. So good negotiators put a little kind of padding, if you will, into their initial proposal. Yeah, the other side will probably reject it. That's fine. You know, in fact, I don't want the other side to accept my initial offer. That's a terrible feeling. You know, you put on the table what you thought was a nice assertive offer, and the other side goes, done. It's, it's like, what about yeah. this, didn't I understand? Yeah. Usually, usually I go, usually yeah. go, oh, my yeah. Lord, what did I just leave on the table? Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and, and you know it was a lot. In fact, you, know, you never accept the other side's first offer in a negotiation, ever. I mean, it, it just drives people crazy. So, and so the second principle is start assertively. Don't start with exactly what you expect to wind up with. Uh, the third rule is, is the hardest one, and that involves something called an envelope. And over the years, I've probably had 5,000 people, probably more than that, tell me after some workshop or some speech that the envelope concept is what really nailed negotiation for them. And once they started thinking in terms of an envelope, it all kind of came together. Uh, an envelope, very simply, is the opening target and bottom line positions on each issue that you anticipate will be negotiated. So the opening is your start a survey position. The target is where you actually would like to wind up at the end of the day. And, and th those should be different positions, by the way. And the bottom line is the absolute minimum you can accept on that issue, short of which you must deadlock. So the idea is I open at my opening and then I cruise down toward my target position, trading things as I go, and hopefully wind up there. And if I, if I can't, then I very reluctantly go down below my target position, if necessary, all the way down to my bottom line. And you know, planning, if I have to go to my bottom line, to arrive there at just about the deadline of the negotiation, and not a minute before. So, um, now, go ahead, Stuart. No, I was going to say, do you see sometimes, uh, Jim, that 
sorry, uh, that people rush right to the bottom line and, uh, you know, just to get the deal done, they, uh, they just kind of, okay, well, it's not going to accept X. So I'm just going to offer the lowest I can do. Exactly. And they use, and they were like, they use words like, okay, I'm going to give you the best deal I can. No, don't tell the boss or he'll kill me. Well, you know, if, if you like that language, you can use it, but just use it with your opening, not your bottom line. Yeah, salespeople, especially, especially when they're compensated on volume, not profit, tend to go directly to the bottom line. And what I, what I try to, you know, to, to teach my, my customers is that I, I want you to have a, a, a culture of negotiating within your organization. Make it something that your organization does and that you expect of your salespeople. Because without that, people are going to tend to drop right to the bottom line. And also, you know, a couple of bucks thrown into the mixture, you know, for a, a particularly profitable deal is a heck of a way to get people to behave that way. You know, it's, you know, it's it tends a few dollars, and I'm talking, I'm not talking huge amounts, but a few dollars tends to drive a lot of a lot of the useful behavior. And again, negotiating is not easy for a lot of people. It will never be easy, and probably is not going to be fun. So, you know, it, it, you have to teach people how to do it and and incentivize them when they do it well. Um, so, so anyway, back to the envelope thing. So the idea is that a good concession pattern takes you about halfway from wherever you are to your target position. So you got to have a target or you can't actually do a concession pattern. So assuming that my opening is 300 and my target's 200, a good concession pattern would sound like 300, 250, 225, 212 and a half, et cetera. So my largest concession is the first one and everyone after that gets radically smaller. Now in practical terms, the typical commercial negotiation generally has three or, has three or more concessions. So a, a three move concession pattern would be great big initial concession, medium sized concession, and then little, little tiny concession as you come up on your target. And that, that's as complicated as it needs to be. Now, instinctively, we we tend to make little tiny concessions at the outset, and if you do that, you just there's no way you can establish a, a readable concession pattern. Another point is you never want to make a larger concession than anything you made before, because now you're raising the other side's expectations. So every concession you make should be sharply smaller than the concession the, the concessions that preceded it. Uh, and the only way to do that is by training. You just have to train yourself to do it. There's a formula called the rule of halves, which says that. You get a pretty good concession pattern with each, each move that you take is about halfway to your target. Um, and that, you know, talk about counterintuitive. That's exactly the opposite of what we're naturally inclined to do. All right, fourth principle is something really simple, something called crunching, which is just simply a statement. Um, we're having a fence repair, a gate repair downstairs. And the pr initial proposal was $1,000 on the gate, which, you know, is probably fine. But I said to the guy, we need a better number, sharpen your pencil. That, that is what's called a crunch in negotiating. And the guy said, okay, we can do it for 800. I said, I'm still looking for a better number. And he said, all right, 700. So, I mean, that was the entire negotiation. I crunched the guy twice and I went with the final number. Um, in your personal day-to-day -day negotiations, you know, in your personal life, uh, crunching may be the only technique you need to use. And crunches, they rain, by the way, it's spelled with K, and nobody knows the derivation word. Um, some people call them flinches. I mean, there's you know a bunch of names for them, um, but they range from very gentle ones like um, that's not giving me a warm feeling. What are we really talking about here? Where do we go from here on this? Uh, they get a little bit more aggressive. You know, things like uh, uh, we're not a bank. Well, I was hoping to make a profit this year. Um, 
you know, I was born tonight, but not last night, et cetera. And then they go up from there. You, ne you never need to use a more aggressive crunch than is absolutely required. If you know the other side well and you're having fun, fine. But, you know, I'm pretty much, uh, you know, we're looking for a better number. Help me out with this. What are we really talking about here? That's, that's really as, as aggressive as you need to be. It, and and I think, Jim, I think the most important thing to understand, too, from that is uh, know, your, know your prospect or you know your client because you could probably get away with a little bit more in New York than you could in, say, Phoenix. Well, it also depends on whether you're buying or selling. You know, if you're, yeah. if you're a buyer, you can be a lot more aggressive. The sellers, obviously, uh, have to be um, far more discreet. But again, there's nothing to be gained by using a more aggressive crunch, except you know, if, again, if you know the other side well and there's a little bit of humor involved, you can say, you know, I usually get things to kiss before this happens, you know, that, that, which is another crunch, by the way. Uh, silence, by the way, is a great crunch. And I'm not talking, you know, these apocryphal, you know, 60 minutes of staring at each other nonsense. I mean, that would be, that would be ridiculous. I'm talking about 10 seconds, maybe, which is about as long as anybody can stand. But that is a very good crunch. So, and then now when, when, when you're crunched from the other side, when you put your offer out there and they say that's, that's far too expensive for us, the only correct answer to any crunch is always the same as some variation of the expression, make me an offer. So when the client says that's way too expensive for us, the, the next, your, your next, your response should be, what are you looking for? Tell me where we need to be. What would it take? You know, give me an order that, that would make you happy. To, and then when they say that, to which you reply, you know, that, that's not going to work for us. So you essentially turn the you reverse positions. Now they're offering them your crunch. Um, now obviously you, you can make this way more complicated than you need to make it. But a couple of crunches in a negotiation are they're easy, they're ethical, they they're very effective, they're fun. It just, it's just it's a great simple way to negotiate. All right, so that was four. All right, five. We only have two more. Don't worry. Um, Five is, is actually a very important principle. It turns out to be really key. And that is, you don't settle anything individually. If you've got 10 things to negotiate, you can't lock down any of the individual components until you get to the end. So, and, and the reason is because you're bleeding leverage all over the floor. And you also, since you don't know how the other issues are gonna work out toward the end, how, you know, how do you know where you have to be on the early issues? So uh, you can reach tentative agreement. So, um, you know, price typically comes up early. So. So the customer would say, okay, so we're, we're agreed on price, right? And your response would be, it looks okay. Um, obviously, you know, subject to the other issues working out, let's, let's park it for now and circle back to it later on. And then you settle all the issues at the end. Now, this is another one of those counterintuitive things. Americans tend to settle things in sequence. We're serial processors, and we nail them to the table, and in some doing, we lose our leverage. So that, that one takes practice to not unconditionally commit to a given thing until the very end. And the last technique is something called nibbling, which is, you know, it's not really dramatic, but it is reliably effective. People get sloppy at the end of the negotiation. They, they, they tend to drop their guard because, you know, it's, it's almost Miller time, you know, light at the end of the tunnel. So they tend to, you tend to hear statements like, oh, we'll take care of that. Don't worry about that. We'll throw it in for you. No, 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 no problem. Um, you need, as a negotiator, that's a good time to take advantage of that. So a nibble is a tiny concession obtained right at the end of the negotiation typically in exchange for closure. So a nibble would be, you know, we're, we're close, we're close, tell you what, you know, give me an extra 500 on it and you've got yourself a deal. That's typically one or 2% of the overall value of the transaction. Um, closest thing we have in negotiating to a layup, it's basically a sure thing. Um, downside is zero. The upside, you know, it's not, you know, 1% is, is you know, not that huge a deal, but over the course of a year, uh, it, it tends to really add up. Also, 
if the other side's feeling a little bit um, concerned about how well they did, believe it or not, nibbling tends to suppress that. And because you know what you're saying is, I need this extra little thing in order to make the, the agreement marginally marginally tolerable, the message it sends is that you did a good job. So I, I know that sounds a little self-serving, but it's true. Not, so not only do you get the 1%, you also have a counterpart who feels more confident in the outcome of the deal. Gotcha. Right? Good stuff there. So I, I really, I really like the, I really like the crunch, and I really like the nibbling. I think those are two very effective uh, strategies. Uh, and I think, I think the next way, like question I want to ask you here, Jim, is, you know, this is all great, and this is all fantastic. But most of the people listening to this show today are going to be on the, you know, being negotiated to side of the table right. versus, you know, be, doing the negotiation. So what tips or strategies can you share for uh, to a uh, you know, to a, maybe a new or developing sales professional to, you know, stop them from selling the farm? First of all, do an envelope and follow it. Um, it's the, the only really critical homework for negotiators is to prepare for each issue, prepare an opening, a target, and a bottom line, and then use a rule of house to get from the opening to the target. Um, without an envelope, you're just basically, you're just you're an amateur. Um, if with an envelope, you'll be a more disciplined negotiator. You'll know how much you've given away. You'll have you'll be able to track your progress as you go. Uh, I, I just have a couple of other things. Now, to go back to your initial question, there's no technique in negotiating is owned either by buyers or sellers. Um, well, I take it back. Let me <laughs> correct myself. There's a very minor principle about trying to get an initial offer from the other side. So, you know, try to get the other side to open first. Um, if you're a seller, you're going to be opening first. I mean, that, that, so it really doesn't even apply to a buying-selling relationship. So that's the, the one thing in negotiating that, that belongs to one side or the other. The other ones are simply a matter of intensity and degree. Um, obviously, buyers have to be much more circumspect in the kinds of things they can do. Um, sellers can be as aggressive as they want, and there's, you know, they, they can use whatever crunch comes to mind, and they can get away with it. So that, you know, that's that's really the only difference. Um, but I, I want to make a couple of points on on the issue of statements about bottom lines. Um, I want you to assume that whatever statement the other side says about their bottom line, as in this is as far as I could go, I'm done, that's it, you know, you know covered as empty, pockets are empty. Those are collectively known as the biggest lie in negotiation. And if, if, you, if you believe the other side's declaration that they are their bottom line, um, they could beat you every single time. So the only way you could ever tell the other side to really get its bottom line is, are you ready? They don't move anymore. I mean, I, I know it sounds kind of simplistic, but it's true. So disregard statements about the, the other side's statements about their bottom line. On the other hand, never lie about your own bottom line. So when you say, this is my bottom line, and then you subsequently move, your credibility just went out the window. And now, if you actually do get to your bottom line, what do you say? I, I really needed to sign. I was just kidding before. You have to trust me. So the only time you would ever say bottom line would be if you were there, and you would only be there at the deadline in the negotiation. So never lie about your bottom line. Just say nothing. You know, so, yeah, statement, bottom line statements are really dangerous. Third, Never ask the other side if their offer is the best they can do. Is that, you can't, go, you can't do any better than that? Is that as far as you can go? It's a stupid, self-defeating question. Assume that they have more to give. I mean, first, first of all, the, the, the question almost calls out for a yes answer. And, and secondly, are you going to stop negotiating because they said they were at their bottom line? Of course not. So we get lie in negotiation. And then the last point on this is, is if, they, if they ask you for your bottom line, you cannot answer the question directly. You've got to finesse it. So 
if they say, is that the best you can do? Your answer is, we need a very, very competitive offer. And if that doesn't work, then you can also add, if it, you know, if, if, if it doesn't work for you the way we proposed it, we may be able to repackage it in a way you might find more attractive. The implication with the word repackage is that for every concession I give you, I would have to have a full offset somewhere else in the transaction. So, I mean, I, this, this is all great stuff, and I actually uh, used quite a bit of this, uh, Jim, over my career, um, even just to most recently when we're buying, you know, cars, and, you know, even though I think I, at the end of the day, I don't know why I bought it, but we bought a, a timeshare in Mexico. We used the strategies, and, it, and, you know, they actually did work, and we were in, I think, Melissa was in there for eight hours, the BMW dealership up in Canada, you know, with, with negotiations and with the, the poor sales guy, I felt, I felt for him because he went back to the sales manager's office like 20 times that afternoon. But, uh, you know, the, you know, we, we practiced a lot of the strategies. The you know, he, he said, said he went to the sales, sales manager's office. The guy probably wasn't even there. He just went in the back and had a cigarette. Yeah, probably. Yeah. But Melissa, Melissa negotiated really hard and, uh, you know, we also did the same thing in Mexico. In the Mexico one, we walked away from the deal too, which was uh, interesting, but, um, you know, these, these, these negotiation tactics work. And I think, Jim, the thing, the point we also have to stress is you, you don't need to be unprofessional when you're doing it. You can be very professional and, and negotiate well. And, uh, and, right. we, and both, side, both sides leave with a, a sense of victory at the end of the day when the, when the handshake is done. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, there's, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not a conflict. It's not a gunfight. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, so, so the way I look at it, it's a problem-solving yeah. enterprise between professionals. Yes, exactly. So, Jim, tell us, you know, tell us, you know, we should have started this at the beginning, but I kind of wanted to get right into the, into the meat and potatoes of our talk today. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background. You know, how did you get into negotiation? You know, where, you know, what, you know, what were you doing that said, you know, I mean, we should teach people or console people so they become better negotiators. Well, you know, there are lots, I guess there are multiple paths to becoming a professional negotiator, but it, yeah, I was, I was doing a lot of commercial leases and real estate deals. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a practicing lawyer. And, um, you know, my clients were you know, kind of, I guess, happy with the way things turned out. So, uh, and at that point, and I realized I was still kind of winging it as an amateur. So I decided I was going to really study it and really learn how to do it well. Um, and that, that would sort of, <laughs> the rest, as they say, is history. Um, I, I was on the American Intermediate Nuclear Forces negotiating team that worked out the first nuclear arms reduction deal with the former Soviet Union, to give you some idea how long ago it was. Um, and I, got, I was on that because I helped open the first Burger King in Moscow. Um, so, so I had some commercial negotiating experience with the Russians. And, and I was brought in as a minor functionary. And, and that, that went well. And that, that kind, of, kind of made my reputation as a negotiator, as the Russian thing. Um, and in the book, you know, I wrote that book 10 years ago, Negotiate to Win, and you know, the, the plan was it was going to sell about 10,000 copies. It would you know, just basically make back its cost, and then HarperCollins would have it in its catalog. And now it's, it's over a million in hardcover in English. And it's in, 13, it's in 18 languages, and it's a bestseller in 13 countries. So, it, you know, the, the, it's like this thing's a cult. You know, there, there are companies now that required all their new hires to read that book. And... And yet it's it's hard for me to get into that that kind of you know cult guru status uh, because I know myself too well. It's like I know the author; he's not that cool. But anyway, <laughs> so the book, it, it, you know, but they want you to play the part, and it's 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 hard to do it. You know, I'm I'm I've, I've loved you know, too much self-deprecating humorism, which they they don't want to hear that. So anyway, 
um, it, it, it kind of, kind of, kind of fell into it. It, you know, some people really study it and they become like these kind of academic negotiators. But for me, it was just a matter of kind of trial and error. In fact, I, the dedication of my book is to all the clients at whose expense I learned my craft. So, so Jim, you know, we, yeah, we got to know each other uh, very well over the last few years and, uh, from everything from sitting down watching Peyton Manning on the Super Bowl to having dinner in Myrtle Beach, it, it's been great. Um, you know, and I, I value our relationship. You know, Jim, in in closing uh, today, um, you know, if um, if a managed service company or an IT service company listening to the podcast wanted to get in touch with you and wanted to learn how you can help them with their sales forces become better negotiators, what's the best way for them to, besides buying the book and, and starting that way, uh, do you offer uh, consulting practice, consulting services to uh, you know smaller businesses, or you kind of fork, uh, we do, or we do, yeah, we do training, we do consulting, we do one-on-one -on -one coaching, we do small group coaching. Um, so, and and we we guarantee uh, that the cost of the training or, or coaching you'll recover within two weeks, or you get your money back. And I, in 25 years, I've never had anybody call me on that guarantee. So. The recovery time on it, first of all, the cost is, I think, very reasonable. And the recovery time is very quick. Um, so, and that, yeah, and it's the uh, Common Ground Seminars, is, it's, the, it's the website, commongroundseminars.com, I think it is. Um, and uh, yeah, my, my email is uh, hagler at erols.com, E-R-O-L-S, and you can always get a hold of me there as well. Great, Jim, any, in closing, any, um any last minute tip or little nugget of advice that you can share with people as we wrap up today? Yeah, uh, don't negotiate most things because you'll drive yourself crazy on everybody around you. Um, there's an infinite number of things that you could negotiate. And, and if you try to pursue them, you'll, your life will basically be a living hell. Plus, you'll be a complete social pariah. So you need to focus on where the money is, obviously, at work, or where you want to entertain yourself. And then for the most part, let the rest of it go. Um, and then accept the fact you're going to make mistakes. You know, the perfect negotiator hasn't shown up yet. Um, and I don't fault people for making mistakes. I fault them for repeating the same mistake. Um, generally, it's going to be one of three things you did wrong. Either you didn't start high enough, you started start early enough, you forgot to trade, or you made too big an individual concession. That's you know, 90, 95% of the time, it's going to be one of those three mistakes. And also, and, 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 negotiation. And, and, and don't do what Harv Ecker made us do one time in Orange County, California, Jim. You, you know, like if we went to his, uh, not the secret of the millionaire mind, but it was one of his follow-up uh, trainings in, um, in Anaheim. And he had everybody in the conference, must have been oh, 2,000, 3,000 people there, uh, at, as a lunchtime uh, challenge, you go out and negotiate in the community. So all these 3,000 people went out to Target, Walmart, and started negotiating in Target and Walmart. And the poor people at Target and Walmart are going, you know, everybody's negotiating because they found a, a, a defect in the zipper, so they want to get $5 off a bag. <laughs> don't, you don't, I don't think you need to worry about negotiating at the local Target or Walmart, right? Yeah, you, yes, your, your basic train wreck. No, have some dignity about that. Don't negotiate at the grocery store. I mean, you could, but, I mean, you know, just, you know, have, have some, don't, don't negotiate at a restaurant. Leave the poor waitress alone. You know, have to, so that's that's a basic dignity about this. Absolutely, Jim. That's uh. Thanks for joining us today. Common Ground Seminars, folks. This is website. Uh, go and check it out if you want some help uh, uh, with negotiation and get your, you know, and get your sales uh, 
process is nailed down. The Jim's uh, negotiation to win book is a fantastic read. You can pick it up at Amazon, probably through the website. Uh, it's downloadable through Audible on an audiobook. You can get it almost everywhere. Um, I've uh, I've read it on paperback, and I've also listened to it in the car as I've been driving uh, across Florida lately, going to Fort Lauderdale at the airport up to Orlando. Um, it's a great, easy listen, great, easy read. Uh, got some really good, valuable advice in there too. So, uh, negotiate the win of the book. Common Ground Seminar is the website. Uh, Jim, thank you. Thanks again for uh, doing this. I really appreciate everything you and Jackie do for for Ulistic, and uh, and I wish you the best of luck. And we'll, I'm sure we'll be uh, revisiting this topic again in uh, in the next uh, in the next little while as we uh, our podcast matures as well. Right. You're very welcome, Stuart. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you uh, next week. We're going to have Carl Dixon on. And Carl, uh, for some of you may not know who Carl is, but he is the former lead singer of a band, uh, a hard rock band in Canada called Tony Hatch, but also claimed the same. He sang for the Guess Who for eight years uh, in, the, in the 80s. And Carl's going to be joining us today or next week. Uh, he's going to be talking about his life and everything that happened uh, with him. And it's an interesting story. Uh, so stay tuned for this. Jim, again, thanks for, uh, thanks for doing this. Do my best to Jackie. And everyone will talk to you all next week. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.